Hello, welcome to today's episode of Juicing the Numbers, your statistics and sports podcast. I am one of your hosts, Joshua Tracy. And I'm the other one, Corwin Heller. And welcome to the show. It is um, Wednesday, April 11th. We've got new gear. Boom. Juicing the Numbers shirt. Um, I didn't get one yet. It's nice and nice and cool out. So I'm still wearing beanies, which I love. It's like a hug for your head. Um, shout outs to the Peralta project for this one. Uh, anyway, that's not the point. Let's get into the show. So, <laughs> um, I guess let's start with Jacob deGrom. Cause we were kind of talking about him before, uh, before, right before we started recording and, you know, we talked before the season started about how the Mets seem to actually, you know, be making good strides in their hitting. Uh, We talked about how last season the Mets had managed to actually put together a relatively competent offense, not even relatively. I'll, I'll stretch so far to say a competent offense Um, as a team. They had a 120 OPS plus, which means that as a team, they batted 20% better than your average player. Um, And that's hard to do across a whole team. Uh, And man, has that not held up? in the broader scope of 2021 and especially not in games started by one, Mr. Jacob deGrom, um, Corwin, do you have any impression of what the team OPS plus wise is batting right now for the Mets? Uh, I don't have any idea off the top of my head. I have yet to watch a Mets game based off of everything going on. I'm going to say 96. So you're going slightly below average. Mm-hmm. Uh, 88. Ooh, that's bad as a team. It's that's not bad good. for a person. That's really bad for a team. Yeah. And, um, you know, you might even, you know, you might say, ah, oh, well, the pitchers are dragging that down. You take out the pitchers. They're batting as a team OPS plus wise 89. Because their, their pitchers are actually batting kind of well. The pitching OPS plus for this team is 69. And Jacob pretty nice. DeGrom, Jacob DeGrom's got like, what, three hits in his two starts? That's pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, so I think it's I think it might actually be more, if we're being honest here. Um, I have his page open. He has his three hits. Yeah, he's three hits and an RBI and only one strikeout. Jacob DeGrom currently has a 238 OPS plus. Fucking bitches. Get that shit. He has a 1,200 OPS. Jacob DeGrom. Pitchers who rake. But, I mean, it's... Wait, it's, 1,200 OPS? Yeah. Fuck, dude, Jacob DeGrom. Fuck the DH. Yeah, the, so so far the Mets, as as a team, have put together a total of 16 runs over the course of the oh. season. That's it. Oh. Six, 16. Do you have a do you have a game number? Uh yeah, the number Mets The Mets have played in 5 games. So they're scoring they're scoring about uh 3.2 runs per game. Now not only is that bad, it's the worst runs per game of Jacob DeGrom's entire career who's career span is what I've been kind of just looking at to see where the Mets have fared um, 
in recent years. So going back to 2014, which was Jacob deGrom's first season in the bigs, his first season with the Mets, um, 3.2. And, you know, it's five games. It's five games. We all know it's been five games. I'm not trying to read into it too much Absolutely. because with this season, it's only five games. But, I mean, you see this guy get just pounded in the ass by his team every single time he pitches. And it's tough to not look at this like most Jets fans look at their team and say, oh, yay, this again, uh, because they keep doing this. For a little bit of, of perspective, last season, the runs per game, this, the, the team scored 286 runs in 60 games. That is a 4.8 runs per game. 2019, they scored 209, sorry, 791 runs. That's 4.9 runs per game. 2018, 676 runs, 4.2 runs per game. Uh, 2017, 735 runs, 4.5 runs per game. 2016, 671 runs, 4.1 runs per game. 2015, uh, 683 runs, 4.2 runs per game. And in 2014, the low watermark, Jacob deGrom's first season in the bigs, um, that is uh, 629 runs, 3.9 runs per game. So the past couple couple seasons has probably given you some hope. 4.9 runs per game? I mean, Look at the raw number of, of, of runs that it jumps up from 2018 to 2019. 2018, 676. 2019, 791. You scored 115 more runs as Two a team. Fouls, baby. Oh, I mean, yeah, that definitely, definitely didn't hurt. Um, <laughs> but you look at you look at how, how Jacob deGrom fared that season. 2019, he gets his he gets his third straight winning season, you know. Um, coming off of uh, mm-hmm. his last losing season was in 2016, finished seven and eight with a paltry ERA of 304. I mean, what's a 132 yeah, sure. ERA plus between friends? Um, but anyway, you look at that in Jacob DeGrom, third season double digit wins. He's got 11. I know that doesn't matter in a grander sense, but it matters a little bit with Jacob DeGrom. It's like he's so good that he should be racking up wins, even though they don't matter as a stat, but the team Mm -hmm. so much so under, like the only time, only time I hear any true, like statty baseball person talk about wins is when we're talking about Jacob deGrom. Absolutely. I picked a bad year to draft Jacob deGrom. I thought it would be a good year to draft him. It's never a bad year to draft Jacob deGrom. He's, 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 he's great. You're not wrong because that's 100% correct. You should always have Jacob DeGrom. But I'm just disappointed that he's getting matched very quickly and very early into the season. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's brutal. So, so far, in his, in his two starts, Jacob DeGrom has allowed only one run that's been it that's uh, i mean how do you how do you how do you do much better um well also i mean he had a career high 14 strikeouts last start you give up one run across two starts and you do shit like that uh how hold on so they're saying oh that's team batting that's why Okay. 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 I got confused. Uh, it's all good. It's all right, everybody. Josh figured it out. We're 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 doing okay. Anyway, um, 
in those two games, however, Jacob deGrom's team did uh, fucking nothing. Combined, combined in those two games, the Mets scored three runs. Wow. It's not going to win you any games. That's one and a half runs per game. That's honestly like in my head, I was making guesses and it's still lower than I expected. Yeah, they managed to score three runs in the in the opening game of the season, April 5th against the Phillies. Um, I believe none of which happened. Actually, hold on. How many? No, no, no. I want to take that back, though. I think those did happen. While Jacob, let me get into that game. Let me get into that. Let me get into that box score. Let's look at it. I think the Mets actually did score those while Jacob McGrath was actually in the game. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah. They scored two in the fourth. DeGrom was still pitching at that point. So, the, so DeGrom actually got the chance to leave with the lead. Wonderful. Then the Mets bullpen entered the arena, let up a five spot in the eighth. Fuck. And then they play the Marlins on April 10th. And guess what happens? Did the Mets score at all, you might ask? No. No. We weren't feeling it that day. Just weren't up for it. So instead, they managed to score zero runs. And Jacob DeGrom, the flawed human being that he is, actually allowed a run in the second solo home run to our boy, Jazz Chisholm. Because he's a fucking scrub. Which means... That because he allowed one single run in two starts, he got the loss. He got the loss because the Mets just couldn't get it together. And now look, look, look. I am a fan of the Marlins and what they're doing as an organization. I think they're really getting it together. Trevor Rogers is having a nice start to his season. That's really cool. Holy shit. Like, you should be able to score off that guy. Like, like once. You should. Uh, oh, ooh. God. And, you know, again, wins don't matter. But at the same time, when you don't get them, <laughs> it kind of matters. Especially when it's, you know, obviously it's a bigger deal when it's your team's ace. When that ace is Jacob DeGrom and you're almost guaranteed as close as you could possibly get to a absolute guarantee uh that he's going to perform lights out how how is it that you always find a way to disappoint i mean it's not like like philly is a good team they lost to philly gave up you know five runs to them miami giving up three runs to them isn't a lot but like uh, nothing you can't do anything for either of these teams i don't know I'm just upset. I no, I I I I know, man. I I'm think we're all upset. Cause uh so let, let let's look at their runs per game per year. And now look we which we already did, sorry. Now let's look at how many runs Jacob deGrom has allowed per start. And I I was mean to Jacob deGrom while putting this together. This isn't earned runs, this is just runs. This is just all runs, all runs that happened while Jacob deGrom was on the field. So runs that that are from his shitty defense, from God, whatever. Um, I've also been scolding my girlfriend for calling them points. It's been making me very mad. (laughs) (laughs) 
the Yankees were tied late in the game today against I, the Rays, and she was like, so the Yankees just need one more point? And I was like, no. No, there's no points in baseball. I will make you leave. I don't even know how I should personally feel about that. On one hand, it's like, all right, that's kind of a an important thing to discuss. Like, I get why you'd get upset. <laughs> On the other hand, it's like, I don't... If it happened to me while I was like sitting in the room, I don't know how much I'd care. It would either be not at all and a simple correction or it would be a lot. And I just well, don't know where to put that on the spectrum. Well, then she said to me, she said, how many points is a run worth? <laughs> and I was like, oh, one, there's no points, it's just runs. No, I didn't get actually mad at her. She's very sweet and watches the baseball games with me. <laughs> but anyway, so. And yes. Yeah. So runs per start for DeGrom. Okay. In 2020, 0. Mm-hmm. 0.5. He's only allowed one run in two games. Uh, in 2020, it was 1.8. In 2019, 1.8. 2018, 1.5. 2017, 2.8. 2016, 2.2. And then in 2015 and 2014, two. So this is not ERA. ERA averages out over nine innings, and no one pitches complete games with any regularity like they did when. Except for Lance Lynn. Well, yeah, I mean, he's just, and Joe Musgrove. I mean, really just those two guys. Oh, Um, well, we'll get there. But so I figured looking at runs per start might give a little bit of a better picture, kind of like where where that number actually really kind of translates to. So on average, when Jacob deGrom leaves the mound, if you decide to round up, um, he's basically just allowing two runs per start or less um, outside of 2017, where it was more like three runs per start, but who cares about that? Wait, did Jacob deGrom win the Cy Young that year? No, he finished eighth. Okay. I don't know. Man, imagine coming out in 2017, Jacob DeGrom, a 3.53 ERA, and then just like cuts that in half in 2018 with a 1.7. <laughs> just casually cutting my ERA, Casual. my very good ERA, just fucking in half. Increasing strikeouts by 30. Yeah, no yeah, you know, not, not a big deal, cutting. not a big deal. Reducing, oh God, yeah. It's just such a disgusting season. Good times. Good times. Absolutely disgusting season. How about yeah, well, how about that increase well, in strikeouts? Five l- what? And winning five less games. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, he also oh, lost one Mets. fewer game. Anyway. Yeah, hey, improving somewhere. Anyway, so so the difference between the Mets runs per game. And Jacob Degrom's runs, sorry, yeah, runs per start that he allows, is like it's colossal. It's colossal. So Jacob Degrom, twenty twenty, is allowing a half a run per start, and the Mets are scoring three point two runs per game. Not great, but still, that means the difference is two and a half runs, just off the board. In 2020 and 2019, the difference between Jacob DeGrom's runs per start and the Mets' runs per game was three. Three, which means that on average, and this is not the world's most advanced statisticking here, all right? We're not statisticking too hard here today, 
But that means that on average, the Mets underperformed their own performance by three entire fucking runs per start when Jacob deGrom took the mound in 2019 and 2018. That's enough to win you those games when you have Jacob deGrom. He's only allowing 1.8 runs per start on average anyway. So if you round that shit up to two, three runs per game wins you the game. And that's just the difference between what they typically score and what Jacob DeGrom typically allows. I mean, it's 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 just wild. It's just wild. Um, I've already basically just kind of made a bunch of blank statements about how much the Mets suck, how much they don't support him, blah, 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 blah. I really have nothing else to add to that kind of statement that is any different from what we've I've already said it's just who fucking knows I mean it's it's truly startling and mm-hmm. no it 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 begs the question what the fuck do you do if you're the Mets I mean you trade for Francisco Lindor <laughs> but that's the thing you, you find offense wherever you can that's the thing. The Mets have been doing, honestly, a pretty good job. Like, their offense is not bad. Yeah. Their offense is good. And they still can't, like, get it together. Absolutely. Like, when, whenever Jacob deGrom comes up to start, the Mets just, like... I made a joke the other day that, like, maybe the Mets all hate him. Like, maybe he's just a huge asshole in the clubhouse. And this is their way of getting back at him. Because that would make more sense than what happens. But man, I think we all know that's not true. Like, oh, we know Jacob not true. like a genuinely great person. Uh, it's just, what am I trying to say here? It's, it's just ridiculous how, no matter how hard they try, and they've been trying for so long, it just seems to be an anemic response. And look. Sample size, it's been two games. It's really like if if they put up three runs and cut down on one, you know, given up in the game against Miami. Okay, you know, win 3-2. Sure, we're not talking about it. It's a non-discussion point because it's two starts. But it didn't, it didn't end up that way. It ended up with Jacob DeGrom 0-2 after two excellent a plus starts and because it's the Mets, because this happens every year it's now forced itself into the discussion that we're having right now where okay this year should have been different we're all expecting it to be different we have an incredibly small sample size of what like 14 innings and at the end of the day we're still here having to talk about it these fucking Mets man they just they can't they can't make it easy for us. Can't make no. it easy for them if we're gonna be honest. No, they don't want it to be easy. They 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 want it to hurt. That's all they want. They want it to hurt. Ugh. So at at what point, if you're a Degrom, do you demand a trade? Now, obviously, I'm not saying that he will. And again, this is so fluky and weird. Because, again, the Mets as 
a hitting team are well constructed. I know they've mm-hmm. had a lot of issues with um, some trades and free agent signings. You know, um, Yanis Cespedes was a nightmare uh, at the end, and um, uh, Robinson Cano didn't hit really for them. Uh, I mean, yeah, that too. But I'm, I'm even just talking about hitting. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> why they keep bringing back Juris Familia? Who knows? Um, but regardless, yeah, I just like, wanted to bring up because. It it's those back end of games, even after he gets out, where things fall apart for them as well. So yeah, it all factors in. But so you know, if you're Jacob Degrom, it's like, at w- at what point do you go like, uh, clearly whatever is happening here is never going to stop. I got to go. Do you w- ever or like wh- when? At this point, like just thinking about it for the past thirty seconds. Where would he go? Where would he go that would both have the space, the ability to trade for him, and the ability to succeed well into the season, other than where he is now? That's reasonable. Yeah, (laughs) the Braves could absolutely trade for him. Are the Mets going to trade him in division? No, No, absolutely not. And it's like, you know, I know the Mets have been the Mets for forever. That is undisputable, but in all honesty, they are by all means still in a good position to succeed. It again, we're two games in, it's too early to call it quits. And if I'm Jacob deGrom at this point, you know, this season you stick it out, even if this season is a complete loss, you have that conversation. But next year, I feel like they are in a, a similar boat of you're still in a good, good position to compete. You can make more moves. You can make, you know, improvements. You could package some of those utility outfield guys. Manny Machado just hit a home run and and improve position by ambition, position by position and do something. I mean, obviously they, they can't be the Dodgers. Obviously, you know, their farm system is okay, but not excellent. Of course, they're missing guys like Jared Kellenick. Um, you know, they're upset that Edwin Diaz is what he is, but there's still improvements to be made where I, as much as it pains me to say it, it's too early to give up on the Mets. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even too much. So talking about the organizational ability to do more. Cause again, they, they have been doing a lot. It's clear that they're trying to make it work. I'm talking about like the emotional well-being of Jacob deGrom. You know, like at what point do you as just like a guy go, I can't keep fucking doing this. Like, I see that you guys are trying. I appreciate how much you guys are trying, but like, it's just not happening here. And like, I mentally just can't keep going out there knowing that every fifth day you guys are going to fuck me in the ass. So when is he going to reach that point? Yeah. And obviously Jacob deGrom has shown a very good temperament. I mean, this has been a years long thing. And I'm not saying this is with any urgency or that he should do it. Just like, you know, you or me, like, at what point would you just go like, I, I, I just can't, I don't know what it is when I get on the mound that happens with the team. And I'm not trying to put it on the guys, but like, fuck man. Like I can't keep, I can't keep getting fucked like this. Like when do you hit that point? It's been years. When do you hit 2018. that point? 2018. Yeah. Like if, if in all honesty, I know everyone has a boiling point, but man, if it hasn't happened now, when is it? 
You know, like he's been put through so much. I mean, this team's cost him Cy Youngs. How many Cy Youngs do you think this team has cost him? Ooh, now, that to- is a fascinating question. He finished third last year, putting up a two three eight with 104 strikeouts and 68 innings while finishing the season four and two. Uh, All right, that's despite tough starting was... 12 games, he only had a decision in half of his games, two of which were losses. I mean, the, the, the 2021 is tough because he's coming off his second straight win. And I think there's, there can, there can be voter fatigue, uh, AKA Mike Trout's entire career. Um, so, and it's not like he finished behind guys that he should have beat out. Like, NL Cy Young last year was Trevor Bauer, you Darvish, both who had unreal seasons. I mean, Trevor Bauer was a 1.73. No matter how you look at it, a 2.38 to a 1.73, even if he's using his pine tar, sunblock, coke mix, um, you're not really winning that out um, or beating him out, I should say. Uh, we'll beating him off, even. Um, Slurping him down. Uh, I know what you mean. Um, then, all right, so then let's look at 2017, where he finished eighth. God, he finished... Oh, actually, Robbie Ray had a great season that year. Okay, I get that. Robbie Ray... What? In 2017, Robbie Ray won the Cy Young? No, but he finished above Jacob deGrom. But oh, okay. I do actually kind of uh, get that. Max yeah, Scherzer I mean, won it that year, but he had a phenomenal season. A lot of guys had really good seasons that year yeah. as well. So a 3-5-3 three, compared to 2-5-1 from Scherzer, 2-3-1 from Kershaw, 2-5-2 from Strasburg, 1-3-2 from Kenley Jansen. 2015 is the... Sorry, go ahead. You no, go no, ahead. no, you finish, you finish. I think 2015 might be the one year that he was closest. Uh, he finished seventh in Cy Young voting uh, with a final stat line at the end of the year of uh, 19 and eight. So you can't really hold the team against him there. A 2-6 ERA, pitched 208 innings, gave up 183 hits, had 202 strikeouts and a 1.09 whip. But Jake Arrieta won it that year, posting a, a 177 RA with 236 strikeouts and a 0.86 whip. Where Zachary did you just read right those Jacob DeGrom one... stats from? Because that's not his 2015 stat line. I'm reading that was Jake Arrieta. No, no, no. We, Jacob DeGrom stats. Yeah, Jacob DeGrom, Cy Young voting for, yep, 2015 awards. 254 ERA, 191 innings pitched, 205 strikeouts, 0.97. Oh, I see. I was reading Mad Bumps right above it. Yeah. Yeah. My bad. Regardless, that year, Jake Arrieta, Zach Grinky, that was a two horse race. Yeah. DeGrom just wasn't there. I, I think I'm at the point where I'm saying I don't think he's missed out on any Cy Youngs. No, I think, I think the NL. Cy Young voters have actually been very good about ignoring Jacob deGrom's wins. This will be a more interesting, contentious debate come time for Hall of Fame voting with the much, much older contingency of voters in that pool. Um, 
But anyway, a conversation for a different day. I wanted to ask you one more trade-related question sure. about Jacob DeGrom to get your idea on it. Padres. No. Let's assume a world in which Jacob DeGrom – what? I, I'm just thinking, like, could you fucking imagine them making that kind of trade? Like a Mackenzie Gore for Jacob DeGrom trade? No. No one could imagine that. Um, I Change my pants. Oof. Let's assume – a world in which Jacob deGrom is frustrated enough to demand a trade or ask a trade of the Mets. Mm -hmm. Do the Mets do it? Now I want to give you each side of my rationale here. So on side number one, it is fucking awful for your pitching. (laughs) Like in the world's most no shit, like we are just a worse team without Jacob deGrom. Mm -hmm. Um, Side number two of that though, it can be viewed in some respect as player friendly. The idea that you are going to maybe not necessarily kowtow to the will of players. That might be a little bit harsh, but that you will put the interest of your players first and have an understanding of the situation and not hold players hostage. And I think that that is also an interesting aspect of having free agents come to your team, big money free agents come to your team, which is understanding the situation, which is at some point in a player's career, it is going to be about winning championships. Mm-hmm. I know no player, not a lot of players openly say it. Usually the old guys will eventually say it. Um, but like, that's part of the whole, you're not going to spend 40 years of your life playing the sport or 35 years or whatever um, to not want to win a world series, you know? So at some point that's going to happen. Um, I don't know. Uh Right now, as it stands, let's just assume in this crazy town world that Jacob DeGrom was to demand this trade this year. Um, he has two more years on his contract plus a player or a, a team option. So essentially three more years left on his contract after this season, um, totaling just about $100 million. Would you do it? I mean, at that point, you got to look at the return, right? I mean... Good. Let's say it's fair. Good return. Just conceptually. Like a genuine fair trade, you know, mix of, of big league pitchers, hitters, some prospects, but by all means, it's a, it's an even trade on both sides. Yeah. You're getting back like a a starter who, you know, obviously not Jacob DeGrom, but you're getting back like a starter who, who can slot into the rotation to fill out his missing spot. You're getting a couple of relievers to make your bullpen less trash. I don't know, maybe a, a, a high-end prospect or two. You know, good shit. You're getting back good shit. Do you, would you do it? It's tough because on one hand, it's like, yeah, like it, it might help out your team in, in a way where it's pushing their window to something that's more, you know, reliable, something that's more conceivable. Um, Did you just say the, the Mets aren't time? reliable? I mean... Um, but at the end of the day, it's like Jacob deGrom is, is the face of the franchise. He is the Mets. And I know Steve Cohen is, has came in and, and Mets fans are cautiously optimistic about what that means for, for running the team and, and being able to, uh, make improvements where, uh, I just forget the name of the last owner ownership family, but Will Pons. I don't care. All oh, right. How could you forget? But. <laughs> Getting rid of Jacob Degrom 
man, that would seriously turn some fans. And I just, I don't know. I like, I genuinely don't think you could do it just as, you know, just from a fan base perspective. I mean, if it truly is even as a deal, I don't think you can do it. I think you're probably right. It would be interesting to see if the Mets were to do it in a couple seasons when Jacob deGrom's contract is a little bit more nearing its end. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's that it's that Bryce Harper conversation with the Nationals, which is like, doesn't look like he's going to resign with you guys. Do you, do you get some value for him now or do you let the you know face of your franchise play for the rest of the season to appease fans? Um, and, you know, the Nationals ended up keeping Bryce Harper, which I think was pretty universally a bad idea. Um, but whatever. Yeah, I, I agree, though. I don't, I don't think I don't think you trade that guy like. Yeah. The Yankees could get away with trading Aaron Judge. You know, sure. obviously there'd be there'd be Yankees fans who would be upset about it because there's Yankees fans who are upset about everything that happens in the world. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's a guy who made his Yankees debut when he was 26, 27. Um, his floor is he really is, that old. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was not a. He's not a young player. Um, let me look up his actual age before I just start saying random nonsense. Um, <laughs> oh, I he was like a little bit older as a prospect. He was 24. Yep. 24. Oh, he's 29 this season. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm uh, 26. 2017 was his first full season. Sorry, 25. Jesus Christ, Josh. So he came at his first full season when he was 25. Um, but anyway, so like, you know, that that's a that's a relatively older player. He's been off and on the field so much with injuries um, and it's right field. It's an important have, position, but it's not the most important position. So, And you have other guys on that roster who do essentially what? he's there to do like you have John Carlos Stanton you have Luke Brett Voigt, Gardner like you have exactly you know <laughs> power hitter Brett Gardner light tower power from that bald headed man hey um, he's young he's spry <laughs> he's good to go didn't he fuck up uh on the base path this past yeah game? yeah like he that. did made a big old fuck up nah, not but his man. fault I don't blame him but just on the Mets, just looking at their prospects, they have four guys in the top 100, only one of them in the top 60. It's tough. Like, they don't have any big-name guys coming up outside of, you know, what they have on the roster. And it's it's not exactly a uh, – it's not exactly a, a bright area of that team where, you know, they can – afford to to make some moves to open up space or, or they have these guys that can come up and make a, a big difference um once they just you know wait out that development process that timeline so yeah i mean need to make some moves to improve elsewhere you know through free agency through signings things like that or it's, it's the it's the bullpen i mean you know we can sit here and we can bitch about how the mets aren't scoring runs when degrom starts and that's absolutely true they don't do it it's super freaking weird but part of the reason that there's nothing you can really do about it is because it's super freaking weird that team actually hits the ball well it's so fucking stupid um but anyway um but really the the, the mets biggest problem today is probably the bullpen and it'll be interesting to see what they do in the next offseason um because depending on how if this season keeps going 
how, again, you know, five games have been going. Um, you might wonder if it was worth trading. Nah, that's the thing. It's always gonna be worth trading for Lindor. I, I'm, I'm trying to get to a point where it's like the marginal difference in what they had at shortstop versus what they have with Lindor. I wonder what that amount of war on the margins would have been with how much you're paying Lindor versus how much you could have paid all of the relief pitchers you could sign with that money. Um, the hard part about that is that one Lindor is always worth the money and two owners always have more money and should just fucking use it, but whatever. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Um, man, the Mets, what a disaster. Uh, speaking of uh, the Mets and disasters, this one that they avoided Trevor Bauer. Yes, sir. Um, he is, uh, he's made the news bump bump um, by getting, new. We are getting balls confiscated uh, in a game. Oh, who was that game against? Ooh, uh, I have no idea. Yeah. Wow. Dodgers, I have not been paying attention to you. I am not that very, I'm not really not that sorry about it. Um, I don't care about your team. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he got some, some, some baseballs confiscated um, because there was, uh, they were sticky and there was some markings on them that, you know, they're saying was pine tarred or whatever. Um, and, you know, it, part of it is a story because it's Trevor Bauer and he literally sells merchandise that says legalized pine tar. Um, part of it is a story because MLB has talked about this offseason and Corwin and I just talked a week or two ago about the fact that they want to crack down on pine tar usage, whatever that looks like. Um, and it's part of the story because everybody hates Trevor Bauer. Um, oh, not everybody, but most people who are good people <laughs> hate Trevor Bauer. Um, now, he's not the only pitcher who has gotten balls confiscated. But many have. Many, many, many have. Many have gotten their, have gotten their balls taken out of, uh, out of games for markings like that. Um, but his name is the one that's been sticking out in the news the most. And it's largely because he is put himself in the spotlight on this issue in particular um, and in pitching in general. So uh, let me ask you, big guy, what do you think about this, uh, about this developing story? I mean, looking at the timeline, he tweets out about the only way to increase RPM on pitches to the extent, you know, the number he gave was 300 was using a foreign substance. It's against the Rockies, by the way. Sorry. It was bothering me. I had to look it up. Um, The next start that he has, his pitch RPMs increase by 300. And this season, each one of his pitches is still up 300 RPMs. It's not hard to kind of put those pieces of the puzzle together. It's not a hard puzzle. They're square pieces that just kind of slide in next to each other. And there's um, only five. Like, and, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's right there for the world to see. And with how outspoken he has been about this in the past, with how outspoken both him and his agent have been this offseason about it, and just how outspoken he has been about his anti-MLB opinions, which, believe me, that is the only thing I will not hate Trevor Bauer for. I, I kind of like Trevor Bauer just as 
a fan. I think he's fun to watch. I, I like him from his days with the Indians. I love his bromance with Mike Clevenger, who I also may have a small love affair with. Whatever. He plays for the Dodgers now. He's dead to me. It's just, God, like, it's one thing if it was someone else doing this. Like, we've seen Shohei Otani's uh, RPMs jump up by, like, around 300 this year. I'm not going to make accusations. But at the same time, we've seen it from other pitchers. But because this is Trevor Bauer, because of the target he's put on himself and kind of just handed the ammunition to MLB, this is, it's the same deal of, like, you are forcing us to have this conversation and it's so blatantly obvious. And that's just the one thing that, you know, we've talked about in the past is we don't care if you use it. We don't care if you don't just we want them to be clear about what it's going to be and to do something about it when guys break the rules. And now we're seeing it and people are saying, oh, boohoo, they're singling out Trevor Bauer. No, they're not. He brought it upon himself. And yeah, this is a good thing. We shouldn't be complaining about guys who are blatant about saying they're going to do a thing, do a thing, and then have to face those consequences. So hopefully something comes of it. Hopefully it's not just Trevor Bauer, seeing as he's not the only one getting balls confiscated. You know what? If it ends up being he's the only one who's been able to get caught doing it, that's different. But if if there are some you know painfully obvious RPM numbers, if there's some really questionable stuff and nothing happens from anyone else, that's not going to be a good look. It's just going to end up being MLB going after a guy they don't like. And I just, I hate having to go down that road because that's exactly what we expect from MLB. So we'll see. It's one of those, you know, we're talking about it now. It will not be the last time we talk about it. I just hope and pray that MLB makes the right choice. Yeah. This, this is very much so still a developing story because of, you know, the fact that we still don't know what MLB's expectation is or what they're using the data for. And if they're confiscating balls from a bunch of players, like literally at random, like a double blind study, that would make sense too, because it's like, Hey, let's take balls from players and see what markings or what a level of stickiness is normal from a combination of sweat and rosin which is legal. You know, that's that white bag. You see players Mm -hmm. dabbing their hands with and all that shit and compare and let's find like a base level of stickiness or adhesion and a base level of discoloration or whatever. Like that would all make sense. And this could end up very well end up being a non-issue for Bauer. The reason it's such a thing with him is that God damn it, dude, like you're just, if you're going to put yourself in an attention focal point, don't be surprised when eventually that's negative mm-hmm. and that's across the board and it's to be expected. How on earth do you expect to take a stance on something and then be surprised when you face a very small amount of what might look like, but not even be retaliation. I, I just don't get it. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're sitting here and telling me that MLB has a rule against pine tar that they don't enforce and they should decide what to do with it, absolutely, on board. Um, That perhaps a lot of players are experiencing large increases in spin rate, especially from the Houston Astros, because they have found better ways to employ pine tar or some other adhesive um, substance to increase spin rate and get more out of the pitchers. That should be investigated. Yeah, absolutely. 
if you say two of those those things along with more as a starting pitcher in MLB and then use them as load-bearing support beams for your overall argument as to why MLB is doing a poor job maintaining the sport that they are in charge of, don't be surprised when your name is the one attached to all of the investigations that happen because for one, you're the one making it an issue on a, on a, on a, in a large media sense. And two, people are used to seeing your name in this context and reporters are lazy as they should be with this type of stuff. And I'm just going to pick your name. Like even, even if, even if it ends up being nothing and every reporter knew it, using your name is just going to get more attention to the thing that you were calling attention to. So like, no shit. No shit, you whiny bitch. Like, it's obviously going to come back to you in some way. Positive, negative, or indifferent. Um, again, it, it's too early to really know what is going to end up happening with this. Corin and I have spoken many times. Every pitcher probably uses pine tar. Or at least every pitcher should be assumed to be using pine tar until proven otherwise. Also, shit don't matter. <laughs> shit don't matter at all. Every, 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 every fucking team uses it, man. Like it just doesn't matter. Um, it only matters because it's technically against the rules and therefore MLB should do something shrugs. Like I, like that's really what we're here for at this point. Um, because if it's going to be against the rules, I guess you have to enforce it. Or decide it's not against the rules anymore and come up with a more interesting and creative way to let players do what they've been doing probably their entire career. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't really give a shit what ends up happening with Trevor Bauer's side of it, but uh, I, I, I don't know why him and his agent are so surprised that he's the face of the story. Um. I don't either. Uh, I don't have anything else to really add at this point for Trevor Bauer. Uh, the face I just made was actually a Jacob DeGrom stat that I feel like we could jump back to real quick. Late on me. Uh, Jacob DeGrom has made two appearances and has appeared in 14 innings so far this season and has a BWAR of 1.1. 1.1 in 14 innings. What does that extrapolate out to? Let's do some quick math. 1.1 divided by 14 times. How many innings do you think he goes this year? Let's say uh, an even 200. 200. Even to uh, let's underestimate him. 15.71 war. He can do it. That'd be pretty cool. 15 war. The fact of the matter he is, goes like, 10 and honestly, 15. <laughs> that doesn't seem that crazy. Like, if there's any pitcher that could like bust through like the 11 war barrier. I think it's Jacob DeGrom. Why not? Uh, what do you think the all-time single... I'm sure we've looked this up before. Like, I'm so sure we've looked this up before. But what do you think the all-time single season mm-hmm. uh, war is for pitchers? High watermark. Uh, high watermark? Okay, there's, there's no way we've looked this up before. Holy shit, that is a startling number. Oh my god. Um, so it's 1884, Pud Galvin, 
uh, can we do like modern era? Because at that point, I just don't trust the stat. There's no way his stats could be anything other than like fucking, yeah, he struck out all 27 batters because we didn't know what else to score it as. So Pud Galvin, hold on. Pud Galvin, 73 and a half war. Um, so this this 20 war season, Jesus Christ, came in 1884, um, which wasn't even his best season, really, what I would think anyway, based on what he led the leagues in. But anyway, he finished that season 46 and 22. What? <laughs> I guess that's back when they pitched like every other day. Um, his, his ERA was 199. Uh, he pitched in 72 games. Started all 72, finished 71 of them. <laughs> 12 of them were shutouts. Um, he let up the most hits in all of baseball that season with 566. Um, allowed 23 home runs, uh, 63 walks, 369 strikeouts. That feels like actually quite a bit for that era. Um, had an ERA plus of 155. Jeez. Um, he and he did all this, uh, mind you, in what did I say, 1884? Yeah, 1884. He did all this with the Buffalo Bisons. Of course. All right, let's pick someone post 1900 because there's some wild can po- seasons. Can we do like post 19, like 20 or something? When did all the right. dead ball era end? Uh, like 1912. Hold on. Hold on. Because I just want to, I just want to give a shout out to all these pitchers with stupid, um, war. Even though it's from the 1800s, Tim Keefe, 19.9 war in 1883. Old Hoss Radborn, 19.1 war, also in 1884. Great year for the pitcher. Um, Jim Delvin, 17.7 war in 1876. How do we calculate this? Can we like um, also mention that like replacement level at that time was probably like an eight-year-old coal miner that's just in the stands during the game? Basically. Yeah. Uh, like- yeah. Um, Walter Johnson, 1913, 15.1 war. Um, the next player here after 1900 was also Walter Johnson. In 1912, 13.2 war. I just don't know two different Walter Johnson tabs. I don't need that. Um, Cy Young in 1901, 12.5 war. Okay. The first truly modern era player, the 26th highest war getting season, 1985. Any guess? 1985? 1985. Nolan Ryan? Not my boy, Nolan. Randy. I'm not sure he was pitching in the bigs yet. No. I don't know. Uh, Greg Maddox. Was he pitching? He must have been. Um, Dwight Gooden. Oh, hey. Big boy Dwight. Mr. Coke himself. 12.2 war. Wow. Give me the stat yeah. line. Yeah. God damn. Dwight Gooden. He's not in the Hall of Fame. I know he didn't have like a huge career after the 80s, but he really should be in the Hall of Fame. All right, Dwight Gooden's be, yeah. 18, 1985 season. He won 24 games that year that led all of the majors. He had a 1.53 ERA, led all of the majors. He p- pitched in and started 35 games, had 16 complete games, which led the National League, eight of which were shutouts. 
Um, pitched 276 innings, which led the National League. Had 268 strikeouts, which led all of baseball. Uh, his 229 ERA plus led all of baseball. His 2.13 FIP led all of baseball. Um, he had a 0.965 WHIP. Um, God damn. Uh, 8.7 strikeouts per nine. Won the Cy Young that year. Filthy, dirty, disgusting. Oh my God, Dwight. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's a lot. And he still didn't win MVP. Came in fourth. Because Willie McGee, Dave Parker, and Pedro Guerrero finished ahead of him. Uh, <laughs> you're on fan graphs, right? No, I'm on baseball reference. Because this has his bar as 13.3. You know what's interesting is that baseball reference also has his war as 13.3, but I wonder if it's combining his batting war with his pitching war. So let me go back a step and let's look at Dwight Gooden's batting war, because if it's positive, I have them up if you want to see them. Hold on. No, I have it. I have it up too. Um, So his batting, that's actually incredible. His batting line in 1918, I keep saying 1885, 1985, 226, 265, 280. It's a, 545 OPS and a 54 OPS plus. Um, and for uh, and value wise, that's 1.1 war. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that 1.1 plus is 12.2 pitching war is 13.3 war. He bet 226. That's a respectable a pitcher, batting average. A, that's a respectable batting average for like a slugger. Granted, he only hit one home run. He still hit a home run, which is still insanity. But God damn. That's a good year. He had five walks. Sure. 93 plate appearances, too. Or at Dwight Gooden's 1992 career season, he had an 84 OPS plus. That's not even that bad. Again, by pitching by pitching standards, that's phenomenal, but still. Wow, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like the I fully believe that Dwight Gooden should have won MVP with a 13-3 RA, but I mean the guys ahead of him, 8.2 war, 4.7. Come on. And a 7.9. <laughs> come on. <laughs> OPSs of 887, 916, 999, you know, batting averages, 353, 312, 320. So all very good. Uh, the second two guys there, you know, home run totals of 10, 34 and 33. So they had good batting seasons. I just don't think Willie McGee should have won MVP. I don't I, I don't think any of those guys should have won MVP. But yeah, I mean, I'm curious about about Joe Tudor here at eighth with his eight point two war. Wow. Must have been so, a pitcher. He was uh, yeah. Willie McGee in 1985 uh, led the National League in hits with 216. Uh, batting average of 353 and triples with 18. That's a crazy amount of triples. It's too many triples. Knock he it had, off. He he was two triples away from having twice as many triples as home runs. He had 26 doubles. So, damn, he he really was a speedy motherfucker. Sorry, I'm I'm looking. How many stolen bases. He also had 56 stolen bases. That's a lot. That's a lot. Golden Glove, Silver Slugger, All Star MVP. That was a good year for him. I'm I'm looking at um the Not war good, of but... these uh top ten um 
uh, MVP winners. And uh, man, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like these aren't, it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to be lining up at all. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I like, say, uh, sorry, go ahead. I should, I should really separate this out by national league, but 85. Yeah. Willie McGee, Pedro Guerrero. I mean, Gary Carter, 6.9. Cause I mean, like, you know, you, you got, you got the guys Corwin set at the top and you know, Willie McGee, Dave Parker is a weird one. And then uh, Pedro Guerrero, Dwight Gooden. And you get a little bit down, like Jim Clark finished 10th in MVP voting with 2.6 war. Like, what the fuck is that? Why did Keith Moreland and uh, Jeff Reardon get any MVP voting with their 1.2 war? Mariano you, Duncan people? got 20, finished 23rd with one point. So it's not much, only at 1.8. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of questionable stuff on there. I mean, Ricky Henderson in Yale had 10 war. Don Mattingly won with 6.5. No, we've talked about this as well, where war is not an end-all, be-all stat, and it's something that you can't just rely on as a singular statistic, but it's as good as we can get in all likelihood of, or not even in all likelihood, it's as good as we can get for a single all-encompassing stat. Agreed. I'm just trying to find show me show me people. I want people. Show me batters in 1985. I want I want people. Give me the people. Give me the people. All right. All right. Player standard batting. Oh fuck y'all. Y'all ain't got war on this page? Baseball reference. Your, your website is very silly. All right, anyway, I'm not gonna spend any more time on this. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, after Dwight Gooden, the next guy um, with uh, Steve Carlton, 1972, uh, 12.1 war. Um, Roger Clemens, 1997, 11.9 war. Uh, Pedro Martinez in 2000, 11.7 war. Wilbur Wood in 1971, 11.7 war. Um, so it seems like that 12.2 record would be uh, – I can't even imagine what that season would look like for Jacob deGrom. Like, I, I can't even – I, I couldn't even begin to wrap my head around what that year conceptually would would, would look like. I mean, like his, his 2017 campaign, which, I mean, is already fucking mind-blowing. Or sorry, it's 20, 2018, my bad, 2018 campaign. Um, I mean, that was a 9.9 war season. So we, we're looking at, 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 you know, two and a half war more than that, and I don't even know fuck like what do you even do <laughs> like I, I don't even i can't i just yeah i can't wrap my head around that me either i struggled to get that one out like always but me either oh man anyway yeah so let's uh let's leave that to the side do you want to you want to talk about another wonderful pitching performance we had the other day sure so joe musgrove um the uh, recent acquisition for the San Diego Padres coming over from the Pittsburgh Pirates um, uh, took the mound against the Texas Rangers. Now the Padres in their 50 some odd years of existence, 8,024 previous games played 
have never had a no-hitter. They were the only team left in, in baseball that had never had a no-hitter. And Joe Musgrove went up there and tossed the first no-hitter in Padres history and etched his name in the history books of baseball forever. Yeah. Uh, it's just such a wonderful story, you know, being a, a San Diego Padre fan as a kid growing up in San Diego in the area, coming over from the Pirates, you know, for me personally, of course, adding that connection always adds some pain and happiness to my heart. Um, coming out and doing it in a second ever start with his hometown team. I mean, it's it's a storybook ending, you know, to finally get to the Padres to be the final team to get a no hitter. Um, it's the first no hitter I've ever watched in my life. Uh, so it, you know, makes it that much more special for me. Um, but you know, for San Diego as a whole, you know, I can't imagine what this must be like for lifelong fans. I've been a fan of them. This is, you know, going into what, like my second season with the team and how amazing it was to watch it myself for lifelong fans who have been waiting a long time you know i've been waiting since the inception of the team to see something like this to see this feat be done um must have been uh just unbelievable to watch um so i'm i'm so happy for san diego fans i'm so happy for the team i'm so happy that i was able to witness it and be a part of it um just a, a truly fantastic game and and i was sitting there i watched it with ethan you know downstairs and at the end of the seventh inning he was asking like are they going to leave him in because you know uh jace tangler was talking to you know our, our pitching coach you know the name because he was with the yankees i don't remember off the top of my head larry rothschild thank you and he was like oh are like they're gonna bring him in they started warming some guys up and I'm like ah, i just i don't see it like he's up there like he was in the 80s for pitches you know early in the season he wasn't looking you know perfectly sharp you know, he had some some issues with uh, with some balls outside the zone. I was certain they were going to pull him. And I was just like, you know what, Nung Tingler, knowing, you know, how early in the season we are, this, that, and other things. I just got feeling was they're going to pull him out. Put him back out there for the eighth. Got up to nearly 100 pitches. Like, all right, that's got to be it. And God, I was so happy to see them go out there for the ninth and uh, close it out and, and was just super efficient. Just a fantastic moment. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this magical start from Joe Musgrove. So he ended up throwing a total of 112 pitches. Uh, that breaks down as such. He threw his slider the most frequently, 34 pitches. That's 30% of all the pitches he threw. Uh, his cutter, 28 pitches for 25% of his uh, total pitches. Same for his curveball, 28 pitches. He only threw his four-seam fastball eight times in the entire game which is just wild to me. Um, granted, he, threw a, he throws a cut fastball, which is why that's there, 28 pitches, but to only throw a four-seamer eight times is mm-hmm. just, oh, man, that's just incredible. That that was a big point of contention coming into the season and with his development, but we could finish up. We'll talk about it after. Right. Uh, he threw his sinker and his changeup each seven times a piece. That's good for 6% of his total pitch count. Um, he got his highest number of whiffs on his slider, which is kind of a no shit statement since he threw it the most, but 
percentage wise um, of the pitches thrown, it is also his highest percentage with getting um, pitch 47% of all the sliders he threw were swung on and missed. Uh, He got the most called strikes again, no shit also on his slaughter with eight, but as a percent, um, mostly on his um, curveball with seven, um, his called strikes plus whiffs CSW um, as he had the most again on his slider uh, and as a percent, that's 47%. Um, second highest percent was his curveball, 36%. Um, Changeup also looking nice and high there, even though it was thrown infrequently, good for a, an alternate look, uh, 29% CSW. Um, and uh, Cutter also at 29% CSW percent. Uh, Good, not pit- great numbers for CSW. Yeah, all, all perfectly respectable. Uh, all in all, his CSW was, was uh, as a percent was 35, um, which got the job done. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, I think 30 is the cutoff. You know, around 30 is good. 35 is right there with like the cutoff of getting to, to really good. Um, so it was a good, really great start. His uh, highest pitch velocity was on his four-seam fastball, also a no-shit statement, uh, 94.7. His slowest um, pitch velocity was on his curveball at 80.1 miles per hour. Um, And he had the hardest hit ball against him with an exit velocity of 103.1 on his um, four-seam fastball, which, again, makes the most sense, easiest pitch to square up. Um, but all together, I mean, just a beautiful looking start here. Um, I, I, I mean, we could keep going with the, the, the spin rate stuff and the vertical break stuff, but it's really just going to be us geeking out of, over numbers. Um, but it, I mean, just, yeah. it's just a beautiful, beautiful start. I mean, so coming into to this season and, and even last season, the, the talking point about Musgrove's development has been, he's one of those guys who's pretty good right now but has the ability to take that next step into being a a great starting pitcher being an all-star caliber pitcher and a lot of that had to do with hey your breaking balls your off seat off speed stuff is electric you get you know crazy csw numbers like we were talking about um they're clearly significantly stronger than your fastball throw them more change out that pitch pitch mix feature those off-speed breaking balls more and this is just like the penultimate or the the ultimate you know congregation of that theory of hey throw the breaking balls forget the fastball make them come chase it and this is exactly what we saw where guys were just swinging missing can't make good contact weak ground balls and he hit a no-hitter or he hitched a beautiful beautiful yeah. Um, so the the opposing team, the Rangers, uh, totaling up. Um, Isaiah Connor Falefa got a strikeout, nothing else. Anderson Tahad Tejeda got three strikeouts, nothing else. Joey Gallo, one strikeout. He ended up getting on base from a hit by pitch. Um, Nate Lau. Strikeout, nothing else. Nick Solak, one strikeout, nothing else. Ronald Guzman, one strikeout, nothing else. Jose Trevino struck out once, nothing else. Eli White in there for two at-bats, struck out, nothing else, and then got replaced by David Dahl, who pinch hit and got nothing. And then uh, 
Leody Tavares was the only other non-strikeout victim at least one time there. Um, so he ended up only ended up facing a, a total of um, 28 guys. That was 27. Uh, he hit a batter. Yeah. He hit Joey Gallo. I, th- I thought he got a double play on that, but I guess he didn't. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't. All right. So face 28 only barely catching the thigh the big meaty thigh of Joey Gallo to ruin what would have been otherwise a perfect game. I couldn't imagine if this actually was a perfect game instead of uh, just a simple no hitter. I would have lost my fucking shit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the beauty of sports in general, because this is not unique to baseball. This idea of superb performance being a combination of talent and sheer randomness. Um, Mm -hmm. But man, is it fucking cool because there's nothing quite like it in other sports because the only guy you see doing anything really, or the the amount of time you look at the pitcher while they do their job, I think is really incomparable to how much time you look at somebody else doing their Mm-hmm. part of the team sport and so getting to kind of be on the journey with joe musgrove um as you look down the batter the same you know with the where the camera situ- is situated being closer to what the pitcher's view is and really you know what the batter side is going to look like um so you really kind of get that extra feeling of kind of being along for the ride with the pitcher it, there's really just nothing else quite like it and to have it happen in a padres uniform so early in the season for a big impact team like this is just it's wonderful absolutely like uh comparably you know seeing the quarterback is always you know the featured guy in football but even then he's wearing a helmet it's hard to see the reactions the face like it's always um it's always, you know, distorted because of that. And you always have the other 21 guys on the field right there in the frame. Not always, obviously, unless it's the all 22 angle. But with Joe Musgrove or with baseball, it's pitcher, batter, catcher. And so much time is focused on that pitcher that when you're up there for nine innings, like you said, it's really personal. You you really get to to feel that mindset, get to feel that that energy, that emotion from from what they're up there on the mound doing. Uh, now, how do you feel about this as a former Pirates fan? Because I saw people on Twitter being like, "Be nice to your Pirate fans, friends today," and all that shit. But at the same time, I mean, when when Cole became successful, it's like, oh, that hurt. Because right. the Pirates were still on the downswing. They weren't going to be good, but you also were hoping for something looking look like a bit of a quicker rebuild. The arch trade hurt because you gave up too much. Mm-hmm. But like with this, the Pirates were they were awful last season. They right. were going to be bad this year. If, if if I was a Pirates fan, having been a fan of you know the Jets and seeing our players go be good elsewhere when we were bad, I root for them. Right. How do you feel? Like the Cole trade hurt because we were coming off playoff appearances. It was still, you know, with McCutcheon, with everything, everyone there. It's like, all right, we can still put some more pieces on this. We can still compete for, you know, the central crown. We can do this. Like Garrett Cole's going to become, he's going to take that next step. Everyone knew it. I mean, who questioned Garrett Cole taking the next step and becoming a fantastic pitcher? Everyone saw it. Um, 
and he was a homegrown talent. We, you know, we drafted him first overall. He was, you know, outside of Andrew McCutcheon, the face of the franchise, and would be as soon as Kutch, you know, kind of got up there in age and, and Cole kind of would supplant him, things like that. The Chris Archer trade hurt for similar reasons where, you know, Meadows, Glass now were both top prospects, both homegrown guys, both ready to take that step and you trade him for an old bad pitcher, you know, as a Pirates fan, you're always rooting for those guys to do well. But with the Musgrove trade, it, it was, all right, a guy that we got in return for the Cole trade, not uh, a Pirates, you know, in-house prospect, like you were saying uh, last episode with Judge versus Stanton. It's it's not the same because Stanton's better, but Judge is the Yankees guy. Mm-hmm. Um so seeing him move on, succeed, you know, you're always rooting for guys to do well once they leave the team, as long as they're not assholes. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think this one hurts anymore. I think this genuinely hurts less than, than the other two trades. But being a Padres fan now, I don't fucking mind it. I don't blame you. Uh, I would like to sneak in real quick one, one other tr- uh trade topic before we move on because um, the Yankees said they traded Tyro Estrada to the Giants and what here's why Josh thinks this is relatively interesting what was the return cash okay um, seemingly I would imagine to do it just to get more 40-man roster flexibility um, or even 26-man roster flexibility it's it I, I assume they're only making this move because well let me get into it so where I'm at the Yankees have way too fucking many second basemen. The Yankees have DJ LeMahieu. They had they had Tyro Estrada, Tyler Wade, Rugnet Odor. At least, at least, mm-hmm. that's so many second basemen. Now Tyler Wade obviously also has the ability to play short. Does he play it well? No, but he plays it. That counts for something. But still, that's a lot of second basemen. You don't need that many second basemen. My theory is, so the Yankees sent down Tyler Wade and they traded Tyro Estrada. I think they're getting ready to trade for a shortstop. Now, obviously, this is something that the Yankees fans have been talking about for a little bit, that we need another shortstop, um, in part because we don't have a good backup, really. Um, And in other part, because Gleyber Torres is a butcher with the glove. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think this kind of signals it because the in middle infield depth has been weird for the Yankees in recent seasons where it seems like we have a bunch of guys who play second and not a lot of – and we just kind of shoehorn them into short. They're not really great at short. They're just kind of guys who can stand at short and make you know the routine plays at short. And that's valuable, but it's not very valuable. And I have to imagine that the, the Yankees – are in some way prepping for it because without a true backup shortstop, why would you trade Tyler or trade Tyro Estrada and send down Tyler Wade? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Otherwise. What, who would you think would be the guy that they're targeting? If you have anyone in mind and what would the moves be? Where would, if they're trading for, you know, a depth piece, sure, that's one thing. But if they are trading for an actual big name shortstop, 
where would they move Glaber? Where would they move these guys all around the infield? Because Yankees infield, it's crowded. There's not a whole lot of room for movement there. So the way I would see it is you would, first off, let's shortstop trade target. I think the main guy is going to be um, Trevor Story. Um, the Rockies are bad. They literally just paid a team to take their best player. Um, and there's been a very strong Rockies to Yankees connection of recent years, which is bizarre, but present. Um, Adam Adovino, um, fucking got DJ LeMayhew. Um, who are some other guys that came from the Rockies? There's been a couple. Oh, Mike Talkman. Tulowitzki. Troy Tulowitzki. Yeah, there's been a granted he came from the Blue Jays, but still a former Rocky. Um, so I think that's the main guy. That's the guy I would imagine because you're not going to, the Yankees aren't going to empty the tank on a guy who's okay. It just doesn't right, make any sense for them. For a backup guy to bring in house, things like that. Right. Cause we already have, we have like so many of those guys. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't think there's, there's too many other teams with star shortstops that are also bad, you know? So I would mm-hmm. imagine Trevor story would be the move, but things to be seen as time unfolds. Um, now, what they would I what I would imagine they would do is you put Trevor Story, we'll just keep saying the name at short, you put Glaber at second, you keep um what's his fucking name? Geo at third, and then first base becomes kind of a rotating series of Luke Voigt when he's healthy and DJ LeMayhew, and DJ LeMayhew kind of becomes your utility infielder. Because all these guys are going to be getting off days. They're all going to be staggered, which means there's plenty of room for DJ to kind of take over um, since he plays first, second, and third. So if mm-hmm. Geo needs a day off, DJ would take that spot. If Trevor Story needs off at short, you slide Gleber over to short, you give DJ second, and so on and so, so forth. So the way the Dodgers view Chris Taylor, super utility kind of guy for a high-level team. With less outfield usage, but yeah, basically is how I would okay. imagine it. Um, obviously the DH is going to be clogged up by some combination of Giancarlo Stanton and Luke Voigt, but I would imagine that, you know, the days you want to give Stanton off, you'd put Voigt and DH or judge, but let's just assume Voigt and DH, you'd put Geo DJ at first again with how many off days you're going to get combined with the fact that there's four infield positions. It's not super hard to imagine how they're going to end up ultimately deploying it, especially with one to two off days in a given week. So mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's my that's my vision, but it's an interesting yeah. move. Yeah, I'm that would definitely be you, interesting. I uh, I hope it happens, just because that would be incredible. Um, just to see that kind of that change, that would really, you know, the Yankees. I think we can both agree are kind of the quote unquote number three team in baseball right now. Um, they just don't have the kind of the pitching or. I don't even want to say depth because they do have the depth hitting wise, but they're number three as far as total teams, number one in AL, but, but three overall, I think this would definitely move the needle and make it a much closer three horse race for the world series. Granted we're 10, 12 games in. So we'll see. I'm excited to see it. That's for sure. Uh, there's, there's going to, there's something's got to, something's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, where, it's just a matter of when and where. Um, Absolutely. One other baseball topic. Uh, I know, um, well, I guess brief mention, Brent Honeywell 
Junior? Yep. Junior made his debut today. This isn't the one I was going to bring up, but we might as well give a shout out to him since uh, he yeah. played very well today and has had a bitch of a time coming back to the majors. And you always got to root for those types of guys. Right. So he, uh, towards you surgery in 2017 or 2018, I should say, missed the remainder of the year during the time when he was working back up, um, broke a, broke a bone in his elbow, I believe. And this is the first time he's pitched uh, in a game since uh, 2017. 2017. Wow. Uh, and this was his major league debut. Uh, pitched two innings, was the opener for the race today. Uh, zero hits, zero walks, uh, zero hits batsman. Struck out two. Uh, just watching his pitches, he has a, a very, very good screwball. Um, looks like a changeup, but but has that like proration uh of a screwball. It's the only guy in majors to throw one. It looks like the Devin Williams changeup, which is very exciting. It's definitely going to be a deadly pitch. Um, he also throws a, a very good slider with some movement that when located could be a dangerous strikeout pitch. Um, you know, I think if he can, his fastball, I should say, didn't look excellent. You know, it was 92, 93, 94, um, which was located extremely well just a little more movement maybe a little more velocity as he builds back up his arm and and things like that but i think brett honeywell is off to a great start looked uh looked the part today and you know for all the woes that the rays have as an organization in regards to um the big um fuck paying players kind of thing that they have going on uh it, uh, it does allow for a lot of opportunities on guys that might not be able to make rosters elsewhere for varying levels of concerns or issues or past performance or what have you. Um, and so seeing Brent Honeywell get the chance to actually start, I mean, between him and Lucas Letke, I mean, it's been wonderful seeing these guys that have come back from um, just tons and tons of injuries um, be able to actually do the thing that they've been spending their whole life trying to do. Honeywell hasn't pitched in any capacity since 2017. Lucas Lucky on the Yankees hasn't pitched in a major league game since 2015. And both these guys are getting to play baseball. And that's just a great thing to root for. So shout outs to Brent Honeywell making his major league debut today, doing a phenomenal job, even though it made me sad um, as I was frustrated <laughs> watching the start, but shout outs to you, big guy. Absolutely. Um, all right, before we change sports, uh, quick uh, on the extra innings rule, as it has um, fucked the Yankees twice and has become a uh, great source of contention on Yankees Twitter. Uh, man, now that we're experiencing it again in a regular normal season, I hate it so much more than I hated it last season. I'm right there with you. It's, uh, go ahead. You just tear into it. It's just not baseball. And I know that that is a stupid old man Puritan thing to say, but it's so fucking tough to watch a pitcher go up there, hit a ground ball, get sorry, get a ground ball, get a fly ball and lose a game. That's the mm -hmm. only two things that have to happen. If you give up a ground ball, Moves the runner from second to third, one out. You didn't put that runner there. 
That guy's not your responsibility. He was there when you showed up. Then you hit a long fly ball to like left or some shit. Not even have to be that far. Maybe you just got a shit left fielder. Runners on third. He's going to tag him. He's going to go home. Game's over. Fuck you. You did nothing wrong as a pitcher. You did absolutely nothing mm-hmm. wrong as a pitcher. You lost the game. Absolutely. Two sack flies. Game over. That's it. Now, I think we all had a, you know, it was all like a last year. It was all, all right. You know, I don't like this, but I get it. You don't want to have people standing around together for longer than you need. It's a short season. We didn't have a complete spring training. We don't want to go too deep into the bullpens to risk potential injury, all that type of stuff. Totally got it. It sucked. We all got it, man. Watching it this year. Fuck this. It is just awful. And I'm sorry, man, but like watching bunting, I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I will enjoy it. No, I don't. It sucks. It sucks seeing a guy give himself up just to move a runner over to from second to third. It is mm-hmm. the least exciting way for that to happen. It it just completely changes how the game is played and not for the better. I mean, what? They want to do this to speed up games, increase run scoring, keep games from going deep. But all it's done is just made extra innings unwatchable. It used to be one of the most exciting parts about a game. If it went to extra innings, it's like, all right, this is... A, this is fantastic. Like this is exactly what you would want. And at the end of the day, it's, it's just an unwatchable couple of innings. Like I almost want to turn the game off. I mean, if it's not the Padres, I almost just don't want to watch the game. If it goes into extra innings. It's, it's just not fun. It's just not enjoyable on paper. I get it. I don't support it, but I get it. On this, I just, uh, it's awful. Cause, and my other thing with it is, is like, so we're, we're doing this because we want extra inning games to be shorter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why this? If you don't want games to go beyond the 12th inning, then just say after 12 innings, the game's over. Put in ties. Yeah, sure. Other leagues have ties. It's not a huge deal. I mean, it would be weird for sure. But if the point is to cut down on how much time games go on for, put in fucking ties. Or if it's about just making shit up, give them one out. Give them two outs. Put the runner on third. Why even put him on second? You want to talk about the excitement? Put the runner on third base. Yeah. Like, of all the things to do, it just feels so half-assed. It feels like just the lowest common denominator solution. I just, well, again, we've talked about this countless times and it will not be the last time we do. It's just an unbearable change all around. I just hate watching and I hate watching it so much. But anyway, thought I'd mention it. Um, We also have here, we're going to try to move through these just a little bit quicker because I know we're running long. Um, Dexter Fowler tore his ACL recently, which is horrible news for a guy who's Mm -hmm. been, um, a treat to watch over the years. And I, I think by all accounts, just a nice guy. Um, what do you think this means for him at this kind of late stage I mean, in his career? He's 35 years old as an outfielder. I just, I don't see how he could basically give up a year, come back at 36 and 
and be a, a significant player for for the Cardinals or or you know another team. I, I genuinely think this is going to be the last we see of Dexter Fowler, which again is a shame. You know, even if he is a Cardinals player, um, you know, Dexter Fowler is currently he's been around the, the league. Oh, I saw red and and. I don't know. I know exactly what you mean. I totally, I had, I looked up his baseball reference page for a completely different reason (laughs) and saw that he was on the angels. So I, Mm -hmm. I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, he's been in St. Louis the four years leading up to this. I'll always remember him as a cub, even though he spent two seasons there. Um, That's just kind of when I started watching baseball. And of course that world series run all-star that year. Um, It's a shame, but man, playing 14 years in the majors, that's a hell of a career. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to argue he should be in consideration for the Hall of Fame. So this will be probably the the last we talk about him. But at the end of the day, solid, solid career for the men. Yeah, you know, he he's such a good dude. You you wonder if he comes back, um, comes into coaching at some point. Um, It's also tough because this was uh, this was the last year of his contract. Um, So this was. It's not mm-hmm. like he's, you know, got a three-year contract where he can miss all of this season and even most of next season um, and then come back. This is kind of it unless he gets a free agent deal, which, as Corbin said, at 36 is going to be a challenge. Um, obviously, there's always teams that need guys to, like, just be in the lineup, but um, that's tough to justify even at 36. Um, but it would be great to see Dexter Fowler come back in some type of capacity as – um, if not a hitter, then a um, a coach or a manager somewhere. But I can confidently say that if Dexter Fowler was to mount a comeback, um, he would be a very easy guy to root for. I'm not expecting a Dexter oh, Fowler absolutely. comeback by any means. I don't think anyone necessarily will expect it, but I think everyone would be rooting for it. Um, of course. I uh, absolutely yeah. would be. He's one of the – I mean, generally across the league, it, it – Across every league, it's easy to root for guys coming back from injuries, but it's 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 especially with a guy like Dexter. You know, it if I want him to do whatever he wants, and I want him to have the ability to do whatever he wants, and uh, if that means playing another season, I'm fully here for it. So, agreed. Yeah, I mean, hey, they've been having a ton of success with uh, pitchers coming back from injury recently. Maybe Dexter Fowler show show those young bucks what it's all about coming back from injury. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, where would you like to go next, Mr. Tracy? I guess hockey would be the place to go. Yeah, let's. Uh, there. And, and I know you wrote down here in our in our topic guide the Masters. I have nothing to say about the Masters. I have not watched it. It's um, the 16th hole. By the time we're done with hockey, we probably should be at 17. And and well, I can give a brief summation there. I mean, we're getting close to the end of who's going to win the Masters, and that's always the biggest event of the year for for golf so is the japanese guy still in it hideki matsuyama has a two-stroke lead um actually this last hole he was uh i believe two ahead of the guy in his pairing uh, xander shoffley uh he triple bogeyed matsuyama bogeyed so he's now ahead four um on there on the 16th hole so essentially uh his to lose with a two-stroke lead currently so Love to see it. Love to see it. Um, <clears throat> anyway, then, yeah, so let's talk about 
Um, I guess let's start on the upper note with uh, the Nick Felino trade. Do you have? I do. Okay, because I've been like searching for some place to have it, and I can't find the actual details yet. I mean, this happened, you know, within the hour of us uh, talking about this now, you know, around 6 p.m. on Sunday. Um, it was a three-team trade with Nick Feligno, captain of the uh, Blue Jackets, and Stefan Nosen of the San Jose Sharks going to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets in return are getting the 2021 first-round pick and 2022 fourth-round pick from the Leafs. Uh, Columbus will be retaining 50% of Feligno's contract, and the Sharks will receive a 2021 fourth-round pick while retaining 25% of Feligno's contract, um, which is how this turned into a three-team trade. Basically, the Leafs just trying to spread the money around so they could afford to keep them on the or afford to move them both onto the team. Um, so, I mean, the Maple Leafs, strong favorites, along with uh, the Colorado Avalanche to win the Stanley Cup this year. Um, absolutely crazy deep team. Uh, Feligno's the kind of veteran um, workhorse kind of guy that uh, is just going to add some crazy depth to them as well. So just continuing to solidify that contention status. I mean, this is... Uh... This is a huge trade for a Maple Leafs team that has been nothing but disappointing and underperforming um, over the past uh, pick your number of years and you can't really be wrong. Um, but especially since Austin Matthews really tore up the league and you were like, hey, all right, like maybe the Leafs will make it to the Stanley Cup for the first time since like 1967. And then they've just not for a variety of reasons. Um they're a good team who has made good acquisitions and it just seems like everything takes a turn at being wrong with them. Um, plus, you know, other teams being really good. So this is a hell of a trade for them. Um, I guess we'll see what happens. The blue jackets end of it is odd because I don't really know what the team is doing at this point. <laughs> Um, Dude, they that team is just a fucking nightmare. I just can't figure out what they're doing myself. Well, because like earlier this year, it's like, hey, we traded for Patrick Line, and it's like, all right, like that's cool. Like you upgraded that wing, and now like you got this this fucking. I know he hasn't been his best of late, but he's still got a hell of a shot to him. And now they're trading their captain for a first round pick, um, and a fourth rounder, and keeping salary. Um, and it's just like, where are you? Because no one knows. Oh, man. I mean, which if it's torch... like, if you're not contending, why'd you trade for line? A? Like, I don't get it. Uh, that I can get in the, in the, you know, mindset of, of Pierre-Luc Dubois wanted out, completely gave up on the team, needed to move him. And you had a chance to go out and get an even better player than Dubois in Patrick line, who also, was desperate to be moved by the Jets. Um, so I get the trade. I still think Columbus won that trade by a, a good margin by also picking up Jack oh, Roslovic. Yeah. Um, yeah, you close. know, and that's, and that's, you know, a young guy. I mean, I think line is still 24. 
Roslovich's 25. So they're young guys. You know, Feligno's deep in his 30s now. He's not really going to be around for their contending window, whenever that may be. I get the move. I just think they have so many problems with coaching, with Torch just making wildly outlandish decisions to bench and sideline, you know, their top players, their top performers for not performing in ways that you don't expect these guys to perform. And it's just seriously fucking with team morale and and that mental capacity of it. And Torch is one of those coaches who's quick to burn through his welcome uh, and really get the team to turn against him. So I think we'll be talking about him being fired shortly. I can't wait. He's awful. I, I do not like him. I do not. I don't like that whole coaching philosophy. I don't like those kind of coaches. I guess some guys do, and it works for them. And you know what? Power to you. But I just don't think that's good for for the game itself. You know. No, and it's like, look, man. You know, you and I have played sports. I've been involved in athletics to some degree almost my entire life. There is a time and place for your coach to get mad at you to where it is effective. Torch is just a dick. He's yeah. just an asshole. Him and, him and Babcock. Oh my God. Well, f- yeah, that's another level, but you know. yeah, I know. Um, but like Torch is just a, he's just a bad guy who just yells about everything. And yeah, there are going to be times as an athlete and neither of us were athletes to, to, to any extreme degree. Neither of us went to D one schools for anything, but whatever, there's going to be a time in your athletic career where you're going to need to be yelled at and it will work for you. It's not the second you walk into practice. It's, it's, it's not throughout an entire, you know, just warm up. Like, yeah, no, it's listen. I get if you have a team where, you know, players have kind of taken over the locker room. You really don't have you're you're missing something with leadership, with, you know, guys just not having or, or management, not having control of the team. Guys take over things like that. You need to straighten things out. I get bringing in torts to kind of instill order, focus guys, things like that. You know, basically, you know, light a fire under their asses. But he's not a guy who's going to be there long term. You know, he never really has been. He's always going to be the guy that burns through that welcome. Like I said, just very quickly, guys are going to turn on him in the locker room very quickly. And his time is rapidly approaching in Columbus. Anyway, let's talk about the um, the other bit of hockey no- news, which is um, a lot more infuriating for a, a whole different reason. Um, mm-hmm. So today... April 11th, uh, one year ago, 2020. I believe this was yesterday. I do have it marked here as April 11th. Okay, to my mistake. Um, uh, Colby Cave, who was a uh, hockey player um, from Saskatchewan, Canada. Uh, he played for the Boston Bruins and the Edmonton Oilers. Um, passed away at 25, uh, which, you know, one super young and two meant that it happened during the season, um, which is just awful for everyone because think about a 25 year old guy playing in the NHL. I mean, like he's, he's living his dream right now. This is not a point in time in which you expect a medical emergency to, to, to grip someone so strongly. And he ended up um, suffering from, let me get the correct thing. Obstructive hydrocephalus. 
due to a colloid cyst um, that ended up taking his life during what is supposed to be, you know, uh, really the high water mark of, of, of his entire professional career. You know, mm-hmm. being able to play in the NHL is very, very difficult, um, as it is for any league. And the Oilers wanted to take this opportunity to mark this, uh, in Judaism, we call it a yard site, this anniversary of someone's death. And instead, the NHL decided that they were going to play a game. Right. So Completely devoid of perspective. I mean, just... Right. Um, initially they were meant to have this day off. This was a scheduled off day. They scheduled the memorial for the team to be, you know, held on this day. It was something, you know, has been planned out for weeks. And then I believe it was this week with everything that's going on with the Vancouver Canucks and their positive tests, having to reschedule games, move the schedule around. NHL decided, Hey, that's an off day. We can squeeze a game in there for the Oilers and you know Connor McDavid you know face of the NHL right now you know the best player in the NHL undisputed came out and basically said it's the truth of how ridiculous it is that the NFL would force them to go to this memorial you know mourn the loss of a teammate a friend uh, and then go and expect them to perform at a professional NHL level that same night Um, and I, I don't I am fully on the side of the Oilers, fully on the side of Connor McDavid and and his statements and just how just cold this move was where, you know, the NHL had already extended the length of the season um, date wise to fill in for these makeup games with the Canucks um, to allow for them to, to finish the season. And the fact that they're still going to try and force this in on a day like today, it's just, it's a shame. It's a real shame that it would come to this, especially when it's so blatantly unnecessary. You know, they, they say that the hockey community is a really small community and, you know, a lot of hockey players end up knowing a lot of young hockey players because it's just, there's just not a huge population of people that play the sport in general. It's a very regional sport. Um, and the regions that play it are very few. It's not quite like baseball, which is also highly regional, but a lot of people play baseball. Um, it's not like that. So w- there was an incident in Canada a couple of years ago in which a bus of hockey players crashed. And that was a huge thing. And a lot of hockey players knew at least the, the school that was associated with the team. Like, like it, it's a Humboldt it's a, Broncos. Right. Thank you. I was trying to remember it. Yes. Um, and that's, that stays with you, you know, like, like you, at some point are going to have some level of connection to um, the majors. And, and that type of touch, I think is what makes hockey so unique in its own right. And for the NHL to do this in what is obviously just a sheer logistics and business move, it's fucking disgusting. And it's one of those things where it's like, yep. yeah, we all get it. Everyone gets it. It's just not right. Mm-hmm. No one should have to force your hand to do this. It's like the Yankees were supposed to play a game on the day of Thurman Munson's funeral. And the Yankees said, fuck you. We're going to the funeral. And the MLB ultimately ended up, you know, moving the game. But like, it's like only because the Yankees said, fuck you. We're not playing when they shouldn't have even had to say that. And I didn't know about that. That's, that's outrageous. Yeah. Mr. Yankee himself. So, I I mean, the, the fact that, that, 
the NHL had the foresight to say, you know, we're not going to make you play a game on this yard site. And then to just fucking say, yeah, well, now it became inconvenient for us to do that. So here you go. Here's a game. I, oh, my God. It's. You know, there's often talk about like, you know, don't worry about um, inconveniencing your job. They don't give a fuck about you. They'll post a job posting the second you leave. And like this is like that to just an unreal degree. Absolutely. Um, I can't imagine anyone is going to come out in the NHL community and support the NHL. And, and um, what's his fucking face? Gary Bettman. Yeah. His decision. So hopefully this is something that we can we can talk about. And, and I honestly just hope it, an apology is made on a public level. I mean, if Gary Bettman does it behind closed doors, sure. I can understand wanting to do that with, you know, in front of the team, things like that. But I, I think they need to kind of make that a, a public announcement as well, where, Hey, this is a fuck up that was overlooked. We need to, we need to fix this or do what we can to, to make up for that because that's, you know, like you said, it's a small community. It's a very, very, very tight knit community. Um, and it's such a, a feat that so few people can reach in their lives that even just appearing in the NHL is, is such an honor uh, amongst hockey players. It's such a, a milestone that so few reach that, you know, losing one of your own, it, ridiculous. I know. Oh, so, um, you know, condolences and, and then warm thoughts towards the uh, cave family, the Oilers community and the hockey community in general. And, you know, here's fucking hoping that Bettman does something right, which, you know, I'll hold my breath, but whatever. Yep. Um, Before we go, I, like AP, uh, am confident in calling that Hideki Matsuyama is going to win the 2021 Masters. Uh, it'll be his first major victory. So congratulations to Hideki. Good luck the rest of the season. And uh, hope we all enjoyed watching some quality golf this year. I did not watch any golf. But that's okay. Golf's just... I, don't... I love watching golf. That's nice, buddy. Thanks, dude. All right. All right. This is another long one. Today, but that's a okay. Nothing wrong with that. You got any thoughts before we skedaddle? This is actually his first time ever playing at Augusta in the Masters, so hats off to him. Way to go, Hideki. Actually, that is not correct. Uh, they just didn't include that in a different part of this Wikipedia page, so Weird. my mistake. I'm, yeah. Well, congrats to Hideki anyway. Still proud of you, buddy. Um, all right, then uh, shall we get out of here? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at Juicing Pod. We don't post there much. So if you want to follow Corwin on Twitter, you can do so at Corwin Heller. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Joshua D. Tracy, I think. Joshua Tracy? Joshua D. I don't know my Twitter handle. Hold on. Phone is next to me. Joshua D. Tracy. Um, if you want to hit us up via email, you can do so at juicingthenumbers at gmail.com. And uh, until Thursday, y'all have a good one. Bye.